Welcome to the History Slam podcast from ActiveHistory.ca. Here's your host, Sean Graham. Thank you, Adam. Welcome to the History Slam, everybody. I am Sean Graham coming at you today, nearly live from Ottawa, Ontario, talking about a very unique documentary that is debuting this weekend as part of Hot Docs out in Toronto. It is called Bernie Langill Wants to Know What Happened to Bernie Langill. This is a fascinating tale where Bernie the Jr., wants to find out what happened to his grandfather, who died in 1968, 15 years before Bernie the Jr. was born. And the film follows Bernie as he tries to piece together his grandfather's final hours and figure out what happened to him on the night of his death because the circumstances of his death are curious. There is, and as a result, family lore over the years grew out of this, and and there was some doubt as to whether the official version of events as listed out in the coroner's report was actually the case, or whether there was a a cover-up involved. Bernie was a military man, served in Korea, and there were questions just about his professional life, his personal life. And as a result, there were a lot of questions that remained unanswered following his death. And that led the family to come to potentially some conclusions of their own, or there was questions, there was doubt. And you see in the film, the trauma that that uncertainty, that unknowing of the circumstances of Bernie's death, the damage that that ultimately had on the family. So Bernie, the junior sets out to try to answer some of these questions and create a sense of healing or an opportunity for healing for his family. So you have that very fascinating part of the story. And then the storytelling itself is quite unique as director Jackie Torrance led a team of miniature artists to recreate 18 of the locations where this story took place. So you have the family home, you have the hospital, you have other locations throughout the story that they recreate in miniature. And so the recreations are told in a very unique way. And and in our discussion, Jackie gets into why that decision was made and and the power that these miniatures have in in terms of the storytelling. It's a, a really wonderful film. I very much enjoyed it. It is having its world premiere two days from now, if you're listening to this as we release it on April the 28th, on April the 30th at 8.30, that is a Saturday night, it will be having its world premiere, as I said, at TIFF Bell Lightbox 4 as part of the Hot Docs Festival. If you can't make it to that showing, it is showing again on Thursday, May the 5th at 1 p.m. in TIFF Bell Lightbox 3. And if you are not in the Toronto area or if you are in the Toronto area but just can't make it out to either of those two showings, You can stream the film. You can purchase a ticket to stream it for five days starting on May the 1st. So starting the morning of May the 1st, you can head on over to the Hot Docs website and you can purchase a ticket to watch the film at your own convenience over the course 
of those five days that is geo-blocked to Canada. And I think you will enjoy it if you check it out. So I was very pleased to have the opportunity to speak with Jackie Torrens from Halifax about the film. She will be there at the world premiere along with some of the artists who put together the miniatures. So uh, another reason to check it out, a great opportunity to ask questions, get a sense of how this all came together in a, a really wonderful film that I had the opportunity to watch last night. And I was very pleased to have the opportunity to talk to Jackie about it. So let's get right into my discussion with Jackie Torrance. All right. And Jackie Torrance joins me now from Halifax, Nova Scotia. Jackie, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Sean. How are you? I am uh, very excited to talk about the film. As I said in the intro, Bernie Langill wants to know what happened to Bernie Langill. It is a, a wonderful story told in a very unique way. But let's get into a little bit of the backstory of this, because as I said in the intro, Bernie is kind of the voice of this. He, he takes us through what happened to his grandfather, his death in 1968. So Jackie, how did you first learn about this story? When did you meet Bernie? And what was it like for you to to come across the story and think, oh, this could be a really interesting documentary? Well, uh, uh, actually, Ber Bernie Langell, you can say you can pronounce it Langell or Langell, but mm -hmm. they the Langells themselves go by Langell, they're uh, English speaking family. So I, I just was on Twitter one night, probably around midnight, and I don't even know how he came into my feed, except all of a sudden this man named Bernie Langell, who I didn't know at all, started sending out a series of tweets saying, I'm wondering if anyone can help me uh, find any answers in the death of my grandfather. And he started tweeting out about how he was named after his grandfather, but he had never met him. He had died 15 years before he was born. And he had died in 1968 under rather bizarre and unresolved circumstances. And so Bernie had grown up with the story of his grandfather um, basically going out one night in 1968 and his grandmother in the middle of the night waking up to have her husband in bed beside her with his head bashed in and uh, a, a pool of blood at the bottom of the stairs. And mm. then a number of odd events happened after that, uh, a lot of them having to do with the military. Bernie Langell Sr. turns out to be a, a mechanic on the base of CFB Gagetown in 1968, he was a corporal. And so our Bernie, who was around the same age his grandfather was when he died, had grown up with this odd, unresolved story that had kind of been part of his childhood, almost like a dark family fable. And he was at a point in his life where his first marriage had ended and he was uh, in a rather depressed state of mind and he was at the time unemployed and the shooting had happened at the Monument of the Unknown Soldier in Ottawa and that got my Bernie thinking about his grandfather and he went to lay a poppy at um, his grandfather's grave which he had remembered visiting as a child and when he got there the gravestone, the grave marker, was no longer there which stunned um, Bernie Langell Jr., who has a photographic memory, he was sure it had been there. And it turns out that the grave marker had, uh, in another curious turn of events, suck, sunk beneath the earth. And when the cemetery keepers raised it, and Bernie could see the grave marker for the first time, 
he noticed a couple of things. One, he was really struck with how odd it was to see a grave marker with his own name on it. And then also he noticed, uh, which he hadn't noticed in childhood, a series of odd numbers that was on his grandfather's grave marker. And they turned out to be his grandfather's social insurance number, which Bernie suspected his grandmother left for anybody in the family who might want to come along and basically pick up the trail. And so that's exactly what Bernie did. And so when I saw these series of tweets and he started tweeting out this story, I I actually had been looking for a story in which to tell uh, using uh, miniature reenactments. And as soon as I saw this very strange story uh, start to unfurl on Twitter, I contacted him and I said, I'm a storyteller and would you would you come have coffee with me? And that's the beginning. Yeah, it, it, it is interesting to think too, because and, and part of what uh, what I do is I, I'm in cemeteries maybe more frequently than a lot of people, and it is jarring sometimes to me when when you see a stone that it's like a couple, and and one of them is passed, and the other one's still alive. Both names are there, and one of them is like birth year, and then just waiting for it to be filled in. And I always wonder, like, what is that like for that person uh, when they go visit? the stone is it jarring it was interesting to hear bernie talk about how yeah it's kind of jarring to see your own name on on a stone but as he tells his story and i think he admits this early in the film too it's kind of unbelievable the family's version of it or, or parts of the family's versions of it so as you're learning about the story how do you try to wade through these parts that are admittedly from bernie slightly far-fetched or, or can seem far-fetched and, and tough to believe compared to the actual truth? Like, like how skeptical are you of, of what he's telling you early on? Well, I can go meet someone and have coffee and, you know, suspend my skepticism for the time that I am there and then just ingest the information and the perspective because who's telling the story is in some ways uh, as important as the story itself and where they're coming from. So um, I thought the story was unbelievable. And part of the way Bernie talked to me about the story was that, you know, not only had the family grown up with many answers unresolved, but over the decades, as they tried to tell other people what had happened to Bernie Langell Sr., they had people who didn't believe them. In fact, uh, our Bernie said he used to tell friends and coworkers and people would say, that sounds like an action movie and that can't be happening and people wouldn't believe him. Mm -hmm. And it actually caused members of the family to stop telling the story after a while. So not only was this a family who was kind of frozen in time emotionally from this traumatic event because of the lack of answers, they also were kind of trapped in that story because they, they couldn't tell it and they couldn't receive any validation. So in terms of my skepticism, of course, you know, I'm, I'm going to go in and unearth things and make sure that what I'm hearing is true. But I sensed Bernie was a truthful person. And also then he showed me the documents that he had. He had been given a number of, after he found the social insurance number on his grandfather's grave, he used that to track down the medical examiner's report um, from his grandfather's death. And from there, he started tracking down other things and including a document that came his way that he took to calling Uncle Larry's folder. And, uh, and as, as you discover through the film that he finds out about his uncle Larry, one of the sons of Bernie Langell, who spent his life trying to 
find out what happened to his father and gathering documents and trying to uncover the case. So as crazy and unbelievable as I thought the story was, uh, when I saw the documents, there it was, government documents and legal documents and uh, newspaper articles uh, from across Canada. There's parts of the story that went national. Mm. Um, well, the proof was there. They, they weren't making it up at all. Yeah, and, and it's interesting, too, to think of ideas of truth and what is truth, because there's, a, a for me, one of the more interesting threads in the film, which is weird to say more interesting, because the whole thing is really this weird tapestry of events that come together, but it's the discussion between Bernie's uncles about whether or not uh, one of them was a, an adopted child of, of, the, of Bernie and his wife, of whether he was there at the time of this event, right? And that thread of I mean, to the two of them, they're both telling the truth. Neither of them are, are lying, but of course, one of them is correct and one of them is incorrect. So it leads to this question of, you know, how much does a family story and a retelling of that story make it true to them or feel like absolute truth when some parts of the story or some parts of the evidence might contradict that? And again, you see that with one of the uncles through the course of the film. And certainly Bernie's father himself doesn't want to participate in this, uh, perhaps for that reason, there's, there's certain things that maybe he doesn't want to find out. So how is that for you as the filmmaker going through with Bernie and doing some research as well with your team to find some more information when you know that there are family members, one who's not participating because he outwardly has, has expressed, he doesn't really want to know. And as you're going through it, another family members, you know, is, is there's moments where there's reluctance on the part of the family to learn more. So how do you approach that as you're learning more about the story, Bernie's learning more about the story and potentially is getting pushback for a very personal situation as people who are, are having perhaps like foundational things in their lives, truths to them are starting to be challenged a little bit. Yeah, it was very interesting because, uh, of course, you know, when we began this project, we just began with a series of questions that Bernie had. He wanted answers to uh, specific things, like, for instance, in the medical examiner's report, he noted there were no injuries to the elbows or forearms, and he wanted to know if his grandfather had fallen down the stairs. Even if he was drunk, surely he would have thrown his limbs out. So how could that be possible? How did he get upstairs? Was he brought upstairs or did he go himself? Um, there was tons of answers like that that he wanted that um, the family uh, didn't have. And it was interesting because, uh, yeah, that dispute you're talking about between the two uncles. So there's, there's two uncles and they care about one another. And one is saying, uh, I was also I was also there. And the other one is saying, no, you aren't. And yeah. that dispute had been going on for decades. And one is a younger brother. So the younger brother said, no, I was there, but tended to let it go just because of the force of the older brother's personality. And then when we uncovered the truth through finding out the evidence uh, that of uh, Annie Langell, Bernie's wife at the board of inquiry, the uncle was stunned. He says in the film, I I thought I knew the story entirety and memory is funny and memory is funny, isn't it? And also memory, uh, as we know, corrodes the more you remember it. So uh, a memory becomes more and more inauthentic the more uh, the more time goes on and the more time 
uh, you indulge in remembering that memory. And yet, uh, uh, so another reason why we thought it was so important to have the participant of Dr. John Whalen in the film, who is a psychologist and also a former uh, Navy veteran who works with military families. And he, at the beginning of Bernie's journey, says to Bernie, are you um, worried about things you might find out? And Bernie says, me, not so much, but I am worried about other members of my family. And Whalen talks about how, you know, family narratives and our versions of these family stories, we become so attached to them that they become a part of our identity. And uh, I know that to be true in my own family history, which, you know, I, has only come to me in bits and fragments and that uh, other other members of my own family are very attached to certain versions. And so am I. And uh to adjust to that change is really difficult because you think the ground is solid and you think you know what has happened and then you're given evidence that what you thought was the whole story is not. And I think that's a really unsettling feeling. And so I think to a certain extent, um, that older uncle is still processing the new information that has come out through this documentary. In a way, he just needs time to have that be incorporated. So. Yeah, I, I, there was a study that was done that I, that I read uh, about memory, and it was uh, it was relative to nine eleven. And, and this group asked people within a week or two of nine eleven, what were you doing that day? So that Tuesday afternoon or, or morning into the afternoon, what were you doing? They recorded all the answers, then they asked people a year later, what were you doing? And then they asked people five, this five years later and ten years later, and the responses ten years later are completely different from a week or two later. And the certainty with which these individuals held the view 10 years later was jarring to them when they were told, well, this is what you said in the days, weeks after. And that's just a, a very minor case of people being thrown by the memory where you have potentially something with family and there's a lot of, of personal connection to it. Uh, an individual, like in this case, the your father, you're learning new information about him that is challenging some of those ideas that you've held for decades. That would be very jarring. And it is powerful to see it in the film. And one of the things that makes it possible though, is that Bernie, the, the elder was in the military and military has a lot of records on everyone who's there. So you have access to material that you might not otherwise have, have had at the same time, because it was a death on the military base under some, some questionable circumstances, you did have the, a trial later on you, you so you had some press coverage of it so so how much of the research was bernie's himself that he had done uh because there are a couple points in the film where it feels like you are presenting him with new information that you and your team would have found so how, how much of the groundwork was you and what was the decision like to present him with information on camera to get whatever that immediate response was I just want to say one thing before we move on from yeah. this thing of memories or come back or circle back. Yeah. I think oftentimes, too, you know, we imbue memories with things that we want to be true, even yes. if they weren't true at the time. <laughs> anyway, I'll just make that point. And yeah. then uh, so in terms of the information, so Bernie had already been doing some basically uh, investigating. I call it his existential investigation. Um, he had been doing some investigating and had come across the medical examiner's report and then had come across many of the documents in Larry's folder. And it was from that information that he came up with a series of questions that he wanted the answer for. By the time he and I started talking, well, he was then 
he was employed again, he had a full-time job. So actually the amount of work that went into trying to uncover the answers to some of the questions that he hadn't been able to find out, that in itself was a full-time job. Mm -hmm. So he very much was like, please go see what you can find out. And we have, uh, you know, I myself did a lot of digging, so did our producer Jessica Brown, and so did a researcher that we hired named Tara Doyle. And uh, so in some ways, some of the information came to us through people that we visited who would actually offer up additional information. Like when we went to see Chris Stiles, the friend of Larry Langell's, he said, I have a letter from Annie. And, uh, and so we then presented the letter from Annie to Bernie in a studio situation. And he was able to find out new information that he hadn't heard before. The information that we found, so there was a military doctor who bizarrely in the midst of Bernie Langell trying to be flown to Halifax to receive care for his fractured skull that had happened presumably in the family basement. He, one of the very strange things that happened to him, a number of strange things was one, a military doctor was told to order air evacuation immediately and he didn't. He went to lunch and the uh delay was for five hours before immediate air evacuation for this critical patient was finally ordered. Then he's taken to a hangar in Fredericton to await a plane that will take him to Halifax, and he's put in the care of a military captain at that time, Captain St. Germain, who was a military doctor, and the doctor assaults St. Germain and is even overheard saying, you're going to die today, Langell. So uh, the family uh, was very intrigued to find out more about this doctor. And it was through our research that we were able to find more about what had happened to the doctor after the case with Langell. And the information we discovered uh, affected, you know, it told the family important information in terms of was their loved one being specifically targeted or was something else going on. Um, so I would say it was, uh, you know, part of it was Bernie's research, part of it was our research. The other thing about that research is there were two investigations, two boards of inquiry put on by the military at that time. And the family didn't have access to any of those papers until about 25 years later when Annie, the grandmother, wrote and requested them through the Freedom of Information Act. The family at the time that the military board of inquiries were happening were under the impression that this was a civil investigation, even though they went, some of them went and testified at the board of inquiry, they never received any copies of any of the transcripts or any of the testimony that happened because as as Bernie learned as we went on this journey, military boards of inquiry are investigatory boards set up by the military for the military and it's not a civic uh, procedure whatsoever and so it was probably not too surprising that the military board of inquiry found that while some of the things that they perhaps were culpable in such as the delay such as the assault um, such as the ambulance that hits the uh, the train that hits the ambulance on the train tracks leaving the base of Shearwater that maybe some of those things didn't help, but ultimately they weren't responsible for the event that happened at the bottom of the stairs. So they found that they that no one was to blame, essentially. Okay. Uh, but the family didn't know that that's what that kind of investigation was. As we've seen over the past couple of years, the Canadian military is not the best at holding itself accountable or being particularly transparent in those types of investigations. So 
you know, it's part of a larger trend in that case. And it, it is interesting too, as you mentioned, you go see other individuals as, as part of this who aren't family members. The one that really stood out to me was Bertha, the next door neighbor, uh, who does bring some new information to light. And uh, she seems like a very sweet woman uh, in the film because she knows that the information that she has is going to potentially hurt the family. And she doesn't, she, she seems like she's really hesitant to provide that information. So I, I'm curious just about her. How did you find her? And uh, I, I was amazed too, that she still had the documentation that she, that she had all these years later. That was so important that she had the documentation because again, well, actually Bertha called us. So when we were doing our research, part of what our research was, was reaching out uh, via social media, via radio. I did a number of interviews actually where I would talk about we're working on this project and here's the story and here's this man. And if anybody knows anything and would like to speak to me, here I am. And I, so I, Bertha, I, I get a call from. I also received a call from Charlie Winters, the veteran who worked with Bernie Langell, who's also featured in the film. So uh, Bernie, uh, Bertha, when she called, I, I believe she was 89 years old at the time, uh, calling from Oromocto. And um, yes, yeah, she did have this very difficult information. And, uh, and it certainly wasn't easy for her to tell it. The fact that she had this documentation made it possible for me to put her on film um, because there the documents were but one thing that she said to me and she did say after to Bernie was that one reason why she wanted to contact me was because in her own family there had been uh, a secret kept that only came to light after her husband died and she felt such sadness that the secret had been kept until kind of it was too late, um, that she felt, as she says in the film, um, she felt that Bernie had a right to know everything that she could tell him and anyone could tell him, that even though the truth can be painful sometimes, sometimes we need it uh, to be able to fill in all the blanks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it, it is it is very well said when she says that, yeah, that you can't really move forward. And, and the brothers, too, when they're, when, when they're interacting, they kind of say that, too, like you have to this is a chance to move on and, and finally get some healing. Cause when you have those gaps in a story, you, you just can't, and the trauma just festers and it, and it can, you know, create the, the hole can become bigger and, and the gaps within family members can be bigger. Anger is there. Right. And, and that's what you see, right. With this family a little bit. Uh, totally, completely. I mean, when things are left to fester in the dark, they fester in the dark and they grow. And, and also that's where you can see, you know, people reach out and, and sometimes you go towards the land of conspiracy theory to kind of explain things. We are, we are creatures that need to connect the dots. It's part of the reason we love story so much is because story connects the dots for us and gives us meaning about something. So we are inclined to uh, look for those dots connecting patterns and if we if they don't kind of exist empirically outside us we will create them because we need to know one of the things that that is really remarkable too about this film and you mentioned it off the top where you were looking for a story to tell with miniature reenactments and it it was interesting so that this movie came across to me as it was presented as real life crime sort of trying to figure out this mystery through miniatures and i thought well that's interesting wouldn't it have just been cheaper to do reenactments like with 
with like cartoons or, or like like an animated reenactment to do miniatures, <laughs> like to do, <laughs> to do miniatures for the whole thing. That sounds like a lot, and it was a lot. There's a lot of miniatures in this. So, what was the idea behind miniatures for you? As you say, you were seeking out the a story to to do with miniatures. So, what was the appeal of it for you as a filmmaker and perhaps some of the challenges associated with, with recreating something in miniature form. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, so what had happened was about 10 years ago, I, uh, uh, before I started doing documentary film, I was kind of uh, cutting my teeth doing radio documentary. And uh, I had heard about this group of artists who create in miniature, who come from all over the world once a year, and they meet in a place in the country in Nova Scotia, and they build tiny things together because that's what they like to do. So uh, I thought uh, this would make uh, an interesting radio documentary and that it would actually be an ex a special challenge because I couldn't show things visually. I would have to describe them. So I get down there and really there's probably about 40, 50 artists who are creating in miniature and they're all women. And uh, they're all women who have come from a generation a couple of, older than me and above. And they're all women from a certain time where their career choices were hampered because of their gender so a lot of them had dreams of becoming architects and engineers and things like that and they weren't allowed to do that so they kind of poured them into this uh, hobby and uh, when I was looking at the work that they created I was just struck by what an art form it is and what an underappreciated art form it is and underappreciated probably because it's been linked a lot to um, you know a suitably feminine pastime. Uh, and so I was completely struck by their work. And at the same time, I was reading up a lot on the work of a criminologist named Francis Glesner Lee, who had uh, basically was a socialite. Um, and uh, around the 1920s, uh, she wanted to go in criminology. And uh, of course, her gender at the time, um, she was told that's not something you can do. Why don't you go get a hobby? She starts creating miniatures, but the miniatures she creates are basically dioramas of real life crime scenes. Um, and one wonderful thing about a miniature set is that you get the big picture, You something you don't tend to get in real life because we're in life and then you get a miniature and you can see everything. And these dioramas that Francis Glesner Lee did uh, are so well done that they are still used to train police officers and police investigations to this day in the States. In fact, Francis Glesner Lee is some, sometimes referred to as the mother of forensic science, science and went on to become a criminologist in the States. So. Her work is called The Nutshell Studies of Unexplained Death. Um, the phrase that she often used was, you can find the truth in a nutshell. And uh, I was really struck by her work and the fact that she was using miniatures in a way that went against perhaps the expected notions of miniatures being something um, to associate with benign childhood or again, something suitably sweet and feminine. So I immediately as I was, oh, doing this documentary on the artists who created miniatures and I was thinking of Francis Glesner Lee, I thought I would love to find a documentary story, a subversive kind of story where the miniature concept would really work. And as soon as I saw the tweets that Bernie Langell was putting out, I did think 
I think this could be the story that I've been waiting for. And it turned out to be really, I think, appropriate because again, as I said before, Bernie grew up with, this is a dark family fable that Bernie grew up with. He's got a, kind of this clinical distance to it, especially at the start of the film, you see that. He tells himself that this is almost kind of theory to him. Uh, he wasn't there first person for it. He never met his grandfather. And at the same time, uh, he grows up in the kind of emotional cauldron of his family as they're telling him this story. And so we had a few things. One, the story took place in 1968. Um, might be even more expensive to create real life reenactments of 1968, but certainly we were able to create 1968 in miniature as as well as just even solve practical problems like, uh, you know, military base access. Well, we don't have to worry about that if we can just recreate the base. Right. So two of the miniaturist artists that uh, I had in my radio documentary, I asked if they would uh, basically come do this feature with me. And they created 18 different miniature sets um, that are based on the Langell family story for our feature. And uh, Shelly Acker is... Um, they're, they're an incredible team. Uh, Shelly Acker's primary talents are she's the architect and the engineer. She's able to construct these sets and build them in a way that also accommodated how we needed to shoot things. You know, every wall had to be able to come out. Ceilings had to be able to come out. Stairs had to be able to be moved, things like that. And uh, Iris Sutherland is, uh, I call her the mistress of uh, blood and gore because she loves all that stuff. And uh, so they poured through, the Langell family were generous enough to share, you know, their family photo albums and um, some home movies that they had. And uh, Shelley and Iris poured through those photos and movies. And in some cases in the movies, you can only just kind of see a glimpse of part of a room here and there. And so they literally, like Bernie's taking the pieces and fragments of the story and trying to put them together in some kind of sense. They were doing the same thing with the photos and movies of the Langell family story and putting them together to, to recreate the world of that story in miniature. Yeah, and you see it at the end during the credits too. There's some some shots of like you see it snowing in a couple shots, and you see how they were doing that sort of a little behind the scenes during the credits, which is, which is pretty cool to see. Just I'm curious though, like you know, I, I'm not a filmmaker, of course, but it strikes me that say as you're going through and doing this, just for from the filming perspective of it. Like, how long would it take to create it, create it so that you can shoot it, and then shoot it where you do have figures, little figures of the people who were there who are moving around in some cases, and, and you're trying to set everything properly? It strikes me as not only a labor-intensive process, but a, a time-intensive process to get all this shot oh, as you're going through it. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean... it's. We actually made a short version of this film in 2018, and part of the reason we did that was because we knew to make a feature-length film using this miniature idea that we were going to need a sizable budget, a sizable art department budget, which is not the requirement of every documentary out there. So when it came to filming, we kind of did it in two parts. First, we filmed what you know what we call the actuality. That's what we're out in the world with Bernie. We're going with him as he's hunting down clues and going to visit different people. And then my editor and I started basically doing an assembly of the actuality footage, trying to cut it down and find, find what the story is and put that in place. And then we used that assembly uh, for me to come up with 
the schedule and my shot list for how we were going to film the miniatures. And actually, we had a month-long shoot in a studio, television studio in downtown Halifax called the Culture Link. Um, we had 18 different sets and a month to shoot them. And sometimes we were getting fancy and doing tricky shots. Like, essentially, because the miniature world itself doesn't move, the camera always had to be moving. And the light is the, you know, we're using dolls as well. They can't change their expression. So the lighting is the expression of the dolls and also just the feeling of the ambience of the room and so on like that. So yeah, it took us a month and that was uh, partway through. There was a lockdown that happened during the pandemic in Halifax. Yeah. And I would, luckily we could keep filming because there was just seven of us in this, you know, big black, room downtown in the studio but I would leave my home every day and I would walk through Halifax and it would feel a bit like Armageddon you know nobody out in the streets and then I would open this studio door and disappear behind it into this big black room and this little group of us would be like bending over these these tiny sets that had different lights on them and camera gear around them and we were like a team of surgeons moving these sets around and and uh you know coming up with different things to do with them so it was great actually i really enjoyed it a lot yeah it's, it's certainly an interesting way to tell the story and uh, i felt they were used quite effectively uh, oh, that's the, great. Through the film. So I think anyone who, who comes to it uh, will enjoy it, will enjoy that part of it. Uh, it is very expressive, as you say. And it is, it, it's a, it's an effective means to tell the story. As you say, little pieces come through over the course of the, the film. And you kind of can feel that through the use of the miniatures. And uh, But it leads me to the, the question of going into it, and I think a lot of folks would maybe agree with me that going into any sort of true crime potential story, you know, you always want like the definitive answer to what happened. And in a lot of cases, there is no definitive answer to what happened in certain cases. So I'm curious just for anyone coming to the film, and of course, we encourage people to go if you're in Toronto to watch it or across the country, you can get a ticket and stream it at home. What would you say to someone who might have that expectation of of a traditional, maybe true crime, start, middle, definitive answer like like what what should people's expectations be when they when they come to this and what do you want them potentially to take away from it when they watch it well it's true you know i, I can't help other people have descriptions of the film and sometimes i find them accurate sometimes i don't find them necessarily <laughs> that accurate um some people have called it a who done it i say it's more of a what done it what did this to this family. Yeah, it is a film that kind of starts out as if it's going to be a true crime film, but then it morphs into, you know, what what I have called before an existential investigation. And ultimately what the film is about is about family narratives and uh, their effect on us and um, and intergenerational trauma and the uh, look at one event that affected um, three and potentially four the fourth generation of Langels. And so even though we don't solve all the mystery in a, in a tight little bow, we never thought we actually would. Um, we do come up with some answers, but more what the film is about is Bernie's journey because Bernie starts this film out as someone who is telling himself that this is just a family tale uh, that exists that has been passed down to him but doesn't really affect him one way or the other and as he goes along not only does he learn 
um, the true cost that this event has had on his family, he learns that it has had an effect on him. And then he has a, has to figure out what he's going to do for the next generation of Langels. Is that story going to be passed on uh, in the same way? And I yeah. think that's also something that we all have to come to terms right. with, with our family lore. So that's part of what appealed to me in, in doing this project. Yeah, there, there's a universal element to that. That uh, yeah, the, how you communicate with families, how how family stories are told, uh, what what difficult things exist that need to be told. How do we tell them? How do we deal with them? And and you you do you see it through Bernie uh, and, and sort of what his story is, right? And I believe like was it early in the film or is it late in the film where you find out that he's having a child and and he says something along the lines of like this kind of ends with me, like this story or the the trauma of the story ends with me. The story doesn't. But perhaps the trauma does, and that's a powerful moment, uh, and you and you kind of can feel it as you go through the film that he is he's searching for this, and it uh, it is remarkable to see. And and again, we as I said, we encourage everybody to check it out. So Jackie, the world premiere coming up on Saturday. So if you're listening to this as we release it on April the twenty eighth, uh, Saturday night, eight thirty in Toronto at Hot Docs. And you will be there, right, Jackie? I will be there. And if you miss or can't come in person, you can buy tickets for online streaming as well. There's a second uh, screening in person that you could go to on Thursday, March 5th at 1 p.m. Yeah, so everybody, uh, like we say, encourage you to check it out. Jackie, if you want more information, perhaps, uh, I don't know if there's a trailer available online, uh, where can they find more information about the films and perhaps some of your other projects as well? Um, my company, I run a female-owned company with my uh, producer, uh, my business partner and producer, Jessica Brown. We're called Peep Media, P-E-E-P. And if you go to peepmedia.tv, you can find out more about our company and our projects. Um, we're also on Instagram. We're also on Facebook. We're also on Twitter. And I just wanted to say, uh, not only will I be there Saturday night, but uh, uh, a bunch of the Bernie team will be there, including Shelley Acker and Iris Sutherland, the two uh, miniaturist artists artists who created all the sets for the film. Terrific. And uh, I assume people will have a chance to interact, ask questions, uh, come up, say hello if, if you're there. Yeah. yeah. All right. And uh, so everyone, yeah, I encourage you. If you're in Toronto, again, April 30th, 8.30 p.m. That's a Saturday night. Uh, the hockey playoffs haven't started yet. All the playoff positions right. are are determined. You're not missing anything on that front. <laughs> so right. go, uh, go check it out. Uh, again, the title of the film, Bernie Langale wants to know what happened to Bernie Langill. A uh, wonderful film. And uh, Jackie Torrance, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks so much, Sean. Hotdocs.ca for tickets. Um, thanks so much for talking to me, Sean. I really appreciate it. So there you have it. My chat with Jackie Torrance. I thank her for her time again. Bernie Langill wants to know what happened to Bernie Langill. A really wonderful and unique documentary. Again, Saturday night, April the 30th, 8.30 p.m. Tiff Bell Lightbox number four. For the world premiere Thursday, May the 5th, 1 p.m., Tiff Bell Lightbox 3. Or, of course, if you cannot make to either of those starting May the 1st at 9 a.m. Eastern time in Canada, you can stream the film through Hot Docs. So encourage you to check it out. And again, thank Jackie for taking the time to join me and wish her safe travels as she heads to Toronto for that world premiere 
on Saturday night. So that will do it for this week's episode. Thank you so much for listening to everybody. If you have not yet, please do subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcast. Do the likes, ratings, comments, all that good stuff to help other people find the show. Keep us growing. Of course, you can also head on over to activehistory.ca. All of our past episodes are there under the podcast tab. Plus, all of the great written material. Wonderful piece on the value of the historiography chapter in dissertations and how when you publish books, nobody wants the historiography chapter, but it still needs to be there. Why is that? Uh, So a wonderful piece there. Also a great backgrounder on the French election from this past weekend and the rise of Marianne Le Pen that uh, puts that in some wonderful historical context. So some great stuff over on the website. So encourage you to check it out. And of course, if you want to let me know what you want to hear on the show, you can reach out historyslam at gmail.com or on Twitter. I am at the Sean Graham. So thanks again for listening, everybody. We'll be back with you again next week. But until then, if you're out and you see Enrico Palazzo, please say hi for me. Thanks for listening to the History Slam podcast. Be sure to check out Active History for more features, articles, and be sure to subscribe on iTunes.